I am back with you again this week after being with you last week. Ryan is at his doctoral program class that he, he's about to finish up that class component, and he's very excited, but he's here. Uh, he's there this weekend, so I'm with you again, and I'm very glad to be with you to continue the study of First Peter. Um, a difficult passage, I think, today, but we are in the section of First Peter where Peter really tells, uh, he tells his readers, whoever was reading this letter at the time, but he also tells us how in light of our new foundation in Christ and in light of our new identity in Christ, how are we called to live? This is what Peter begins to do in, in this section of this letter. So in case you haven't been with us, just want to recap a little bit about wh- where we are in this study of First Peter. Peter is writing, First Peter is a letter, and he is writing to what he calls the elect exiles of the dispersion scattered all over Asia. Now, these might have been Jewish believers who were scattered around this country, or it could have been new Gentile Christian converts. We're not sure, and it probably was a mix of both. But he is calling them in this letter um, exiles, because no matter where they ethnically might be from, no matter their ethnic origin... He's telling them, as Christians, you are, no matter what, you are an effectual exile. You are living now in a world that is not your home. Because as a Christian, you are now a citizen of heaven. I think it's important just to kind of think about what it must have been like for these early readers as we read today's passage. These these were new Christians, first century Christians. They had nothing really to look at historically on how to live. The whole thing was new to them. They didn't have this neatly packaged word of God. They, they didn't live in a democracy with all sorts of protections like we have for different religious expression. These readers were facing some level of persecution and trial for their faith at the time Peter wrote this. And Peter had um, an idea of that proved to be true that they would face increasing persecution and trials for their faith. So Peter, along with Paul and along with the other New Testament writers, has been called to help this early church know exactly how, in light of their new identities, in light of their new citizenship, how they are to live in a land that will not understand them, that may hate them, that will likely hurt them. He is encouraging them in this letter, but he's also challenging them. He's saying, you are a Christian. This is how you should live. This is how you should be different. Last week, we talked about what, um, what Peter had to say to how, as to how the believers were to live in relationship with the unbelievers that were in their communities. This week, we're going to talk about how believers are to live under human authority And as I studied this this week, I thought about this. Peter, when he wrote this letter, very likely would not have imagined two things that are true for us today. Many times true for us today. I don't think he would have imagined that Christians would ever live in a place where they have so much freedom of religious expression. And I also don't think he ever would have thought of Christians living in a way where they live so lackadaisically in relation to their faith, that they don't really stand out at all from the culture. Because the early church faced almost instant persecution, and there was no doubt for them 
that being a Christian meant an all-out change in focus, in purpose, and in the way they lived. But while Peter may not have imagined either of those things, God knew exactly where the church would be in 2017. And he inspired this letter for the first century Christians, and he inspired this letter for 2017 Christians. So let's read this passage today and see what he has to say to us. If you would stand with me, it's going to be on the screen. Let's read it together. We are in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Let's read it together. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Thank you for reading with me. So as we listen to that, aren't you so glad that, that Peter here tells us as followers of Christ that we are to disparage and resist and dishonor and fight and take down authority unless we happen to agree with it. If only it said that because we do that well. But that's not what he says, unfortunately. And this is not a fluke verse. In fact, there are stronger verses along these same lines that we'll talk about in a minute. But before we jump in here and see exactly how God wants to challenge us today. And, and before we all jump into what I did many times this week, I have to admit, before we jump into our yes, but, I think it's important just to really put ourselves in the place of the people who were reading this when Peter wrote it. These people that would have been reading this when Peter wrote it, were people that were impacted not just by a foolish leader or a bad leader or a mean leader. They were the people who lived under a tyrannical, evil, despotic tyrant. There were no checks and balances, or if there were any, they were minimal in place to protect them from the actions of the leader that they were under at this time. The Christians who Peter was writing to were the vulnerable ones. They would have been the very people at risk they would have been the very people who were punished for their faith, the very people who were taxed unfairly for their faith, jailed or killed for their faith. Peter's audience would have heard these words and this challenge, and it would have been incredibly hard for them to hear. Much harder, I think I can say, than it is for anyone in this room to hear them today. And their motivation to listen and to follow this challenge would have been primarily these four words, for the Lord's sake. And we'll get back to that in a minute. But let's just dig into this and see what he's saying. Number one, we are called to be subject to every human institution. 
This is a general statement for Christians. Proper respect for and humble submission to legitimate institutions of human authority should be the default position for Christ followers. Default position. That should be sort of the standard place that we find ourselves. We are called to follow the law and to submit to human governments, which admittedly at times is easy and at times is hard. But we serve and we honor the Lord in our submission to others. And this isn't the only place we are called to submit. In fact, submission is going to be a theme in this letter over the next few weeks. But with regard to governmental authority, this is not the only place that we hear a calling like this one. Romans 13.1 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. In Titus 3.1, Paul tells Titus, Remember then to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. Jesus himself, when the Pharisees were trying to pit him against the government of Caesar, said famously what? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. God ordained and set up governments for a purpose. Are they at times unwise? Are they at times downright evil? Yes. Is it hard for us to understand God's purpose at times? Yes. But Peter gives no different direction based on the character of the government. What God is clearly more concerned about is the character of his people. We are to be different. And again, similarly to what we saw last week when we had our challenge to our good conduct with the Gentiles, our goal is to show ourselves as Christians in a true light and hopefully to reflect God in that process. But I think sometimes we can read a verse like this and we can, we can get kind of riled up and we wonder how it could be true. But really, this verse says nothing different than generally what God's word says about how we are called to relate and be to everyone all the time. Romans 12, 14 through 21 says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the Beatitudes, which are all the blessed are found in Matthew 5, it shows us in those that blessing comes almost always to us in ways that are opposite from the ways of the world. Ways like it says, blessed are the peacemakers. 
Later on in chapter 5 of Matthew, it tells us anger in your heart is, is basically the same thing as murder. It calls us to turn the other cheek when we are attacked. We are called to love our enemies. We are called to pray for those who persecute us. And all of these point to this overall upside-down life that God has called us to. This is who we are to be in the culture. Orderly, peaceful, kind, a calming influence rather than a disrupting one. And I think it's also important for us when we talk about anything related to politics or the government or, or human governmental institutions, God's call on each of our lives as Christ followers is primarily a personal one, not a national one. And I think we can get all up in arms about what we see from our national leaders or our city leaders, or we see trends in culture or policy that alarm us. And all the while we completely forget or ignore how God has just called us to live both individually and corporately as his church. I think it's important to say that this does not mean that we never disobey, we never engage in civil civil disobedience. But the only examples that we see in Scripture of civil disobedience are when man's command directly contradicts a command of God or something commanded in his revealed word. We see it in Daniel 3. Remember Daniel 3, it's uh, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, and they faced the fiery furnace as a result. But even then, it's a beautiful story as they go to the fiery furnace respectfully and honorably. Daniel refused himself to obey. Um, He was told, you you cannot pray. And he he said, "I, I have to pray. And he faced the lion's den. In Acts 4, Peter and John are commanded to quit sharing the gospel and they respond again respectfully and, they, and, and also fully ready to accept whatever their punishment is. But they say this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Then later they're, they're jailed, they're miraculously set free And when they're asked why they kept preaching when they were told to stop, Peter responds, we must obey God rather than men. There are times when when we, we engage in civil disobedience when it's direct contradiction to what we're called to as Christians. But we need to be careful and prayerful and scriptural when we contemplate disobedience to the laws of the land. Because we may very well instead simply be disobeying God. And I also think it's important to say that we talk about civil disobedience, but that's even different than just the, the, the general um, calling we have to speak out or to speak up many times. You can live in submission and subjection and still be in disagreement. I thought about this this week, this idea of honoring, and I was like, so many of us with elderly parents, or or not even elderly, but as we grow up into adults, and we have parents, and we're all adults working together, and we know we're called to honor them, we have to maneuver through how does it mean, what does it mean to honor them when we have big disagreements, or when we believe we should be doing something different than them. It's very similar. God's word does not prohibit us from using the system in place to make our concerns known. And very, very often, we will wrestle with God on how or what to speak 
to speak out against as we look at God's word and as we look at society and as we look at our experiences and as we attempt to try to figure out what matters to him. Because that is what should be our concern. But no matter what, we do that differently. If we're going to speak out, we do it with respect and we do it with thoughtfulness and we do it with decency. We should always take the whole of Scripture and the whole of what Scripture says about the call in our lives as Christ followers. We should take all of that into account before we ever speak or act. We should always consider our witness. Are we bringing glory to God or are we disparaging his name? We are called to be different, to have a different response to authority, even when authority is bad, even when authority is foolish, even when we disagree with it. Number two, we submit for the Lord's sake. We are told to submit to earthly leaders because God has called us to submit to earthly leaders and because we want to honor him. Again, we may not get it. Our earthly wisdom may not agree with it, but we do it to honor God. We submit to our earthly authority as an outflow of our personal submission to God's authority over us. I think about this like with Ryan sometimes. There, there are times I do not agree with things that Ryan has done or wanted to do. I know that may shock you. And it is rare. I promise you we are often very much on exactly the same wavelength. But sometimes that happens. And sometimes, if I'm honest, I'm always just waiting for the I told you so moment when I get to tell him I was right. And that rarely happens either. But when we have a disagreement, I express myself to him. I will state the fact that I think this may not be the best idea or may not be the right thing to do. But once a decision is made... I fall in line with Ryan's leadership because he is my earthly leader. And I believe that God has placed him where he is. And I believe that God has placed me where I am. And out of respect for Ryan and out of respect for God and honor for God, the one who placed him where he is and out of a desire to not be divisive in this place, and to help this place function well, I submit to his leadership. Sometimes it happens at home. I promise you that sometimes Stephanie submits to me much more out of her desire to honor God's order for our family than because she thinks I'm right. And there are times that I defer to her because I believe God has sovereignly put her in a very specific place as the caretaker of our home and our family. But when Stephanie or I buck the system, when we fight against the order that God has set in place, and there's a division between us, our kids will see the opening in our lack of honor for each other. And suddenly, God's perfect order for our home is disrupted. And it's like a microcosm of society as anarchy ensues. God has set up every human institution and order, and we honor God by honoring what he has put in place. But why we submit is very important because there are many of us who are just sort of naturally submissive. We're conflict averse. We don't ever want to rock the boat. We submit out of fear. 
Or maybe we just want to be submissive because we think that will help us get ahead in this world. Or maybe we submit because we're just lazy. Or maybe we've made an idol out of the institutions and we are living as if they are our master. But that is not what this passage is talking about. We are to submit for one reason. For the Lord's sake. And the Lord is first and foremost about souls. He is not about the comfort of souls. He is not about their physical safety. He is not about them getting respect. He's not about them getting care from men. He is about their eternal connection with him. He is about his kingdom. And everything we do ultimately should be grounded in the kingdom of God and the promulgation of the gospel, not in the kingdom of man. And I honestly think that is part of our problem. Why passages like this cause us so much angst. Because we call ourselves Christ followers, but Christ's kingdom is not our primary concern. When God's word gives us direction, there is a presumption in it that we as Christ followers have died to all of who we are. There is a presumption that we are first and foremost kingdom focused. We just learned last week that we have been given a new identity. Why? To tell of his excellencies. To spread the gospel. We have good conduct among the Gentiles. Why? So that they may someday glorify God alongside of us. Christ was not preoccupied with political and social reform. In fact, his followers were frustrated with him. They wanted him to be more political, more of a reformer of society. Many of them fell away because that was not what he did. He, his focus was always on matters that pertain to his kingdom. He came to call sinners to repentance, to seek and to save the lost. He came to set people free. He came to bring light into the darkness. And we, each of us in this room who claim Christ, are first And foremost, called to carry on his ministry, to share the gospel, to make disciples. We get a monthly magazine at our house from a ministry that's called Voice of the Martyrs. And Stephanie reads it faithfully. Me, I just lay in bed and let her tell me the stories. But this month, there is a great story of this passage in action. So it's the story of this family um, who accepted Christ. They live in an animistic, which is a a religion that, that... sort of worships nature, all kinds of gods. They live in an animistic village in Laos, which is in Southeast Asia. So they accept Christ. They have this new freedom and they have this new joy and other families start coming to them and they see what's going on with this family and they begin to accept Christ. They begin to follow Jesus. Now these families who accepted Christ, they're no longer bound to worship all these other gods. They, they no longer are bound by the fear of what these other gods and evil spirits can do. And the leaders are worried that the, this foreign religion that has infiltrated their village might anger all these other gods. So they demand that these families renounce their Christianity. And the families refuse. And they're all exiled out of the village to live under tarps in a rice field. And they go without argument and they go without fight. 
And other families in the village saw the way they responded. They saw the depth and the power of their faith. They saw the way they responded to the village leaders. They begin to go out to the rice field to meet with these families. People come from other tribes, and suddenly this, this, this three-family uh, group has grown into almost a small village living in the rice field as other families are drawn to put their trust in Christ. God is using those exiles to share the gospel. And that is the why that God cares about. So this morning, I think we need to ask ourselves this question. How do you think we are doing with this? How are you doing with it? Do you look different than the culture around you in how you respond to authority with which you disagree? Because it's very easy to do it when you agree, right? Are you as concerned with your own personal spiritual virtue, with righteousness, with love, with graciousness, humility? Are you as concerned about your own evangelism, sharing the gospel, as you are about the virtue of human institutions or governments or politicians? Are the causes that you support, are the complaints you make, are the protests you connect with, are those things virtuous? And do you complain and protest in a way that reflects the gospel? There are indeed many causes that speak directly to the essence of the gospel. I think anything that takes or devalues human life, things like abortion and euthanasia and assisted suicide, we care about those. Those affect the essence of the gospel because we believe that every human life bears the image of God and is of value. We should speak out about any form of racism because anything that sets one race above another is fully anti-gospel because we all come to the cross on absolute equal footing. And there will be other causes that go against the gospel or go against God's word and we should speak out. But we should also remember that no matter what the government does, God's word to us is a word to individuals. And, and then as individuals, collectively as the church. No matter what the government does, we as a church and we as individuals should be doing what God has called us to do. We should be caring for immigrants and refugees. We should be caring for widows and orphans. We should be caring for the poor. And we should be doing so many other acts of love and mercy to which we are specifically called to do in God's word. But all of our engagement in these matters must be gospel-centered. Everything we do should be focused on this truth, that without Jesus, we are all lost, we are all adrift, we are all separated from God. Now, and if we don't encounter Jesus for eternity, but Jesus came to reconcile us to God. He came to give us abundant life now and for eternity. He came to give us freedom and peace and joy and purpose. Everything we should do should be founded on that statement of truth. And if that is not our primary hope and intention, then we are just, as God lamented through the prophet Jeremiah, then we are just healing the wounds of God's people superficially. All we do as Christ followers, should be for the Lord's sake. Number three, we submit because we are free. 
I think it is also so important that we are careful not to make an idol out of our government or our governmental leaders. They do not control us, and in them we do not find our hope. We, as citizens of heaven, have one king. Our hope is not in a president or in a mayor or in a congressman or a congresswoman. Our hope is not in policy or legislation. As we grow in relationship with God, we grow in trust of God. And that trust allows us to believe that God still exercises sovereign and perfectly wise rule over societies and nations, even when they are less than perfect even when we face persecution on their account. Jeremiah 17 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. It says, whose trust is the Lord. Blessed is the man whose trust equals the Lord, not the Lord plus, not the Lord plus wise politicians or just governments, just whose trust equals the Lord. Proverbs 29, 26 says, Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. We have one king. We are free. We're not bound to human institutions. They are not our masters. Listen to this. God freed us from these institutions as masters, But then he sent us back into them to declare his excellencies as his servants, not the servants of man. Christ died to purify us for good deeds. And then we enter the world and the culture with the purpose of displaying the glory and the excellency of Christ. How rich a calling is that? It should put all of the chaos of the world into a whole new glorious perspective for us as Christ followers. And then number four, HLFH is the simple solution. God has called us to be different. He's called us to be different in how we love, different in how we live, different in our lifestyle. And here he's called us to be different in our response to authority. But really all these details that he gives us on how to live might be unnecessary if we simply lived by the last verse of today's text. If you got a dry erase marker last week, go home and write this verse on your mirror this week. It is powerful. It is easy to remember. He says, honor everyone. Honor means to regard everyone. There's no qualification there. He says, regard everyone with great respect or esteem. That's what that word honor means. And that means everyone, yes, even that person that you're thinking of right now. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Love the body of Christ. Love the body of Christ assembled in this church. Love the, uh, the body of Christ universal, other believers. And again, yes, even that person that you're thinking of right now. Love the brotherhood. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Now, this idea of fearing God is not a cowering fear. It is a reverential, respectful fear. This week, I I just have to tell you, I truly struggled with this. I kept looking for loopholes in this passage. 
And I read Proverbs. I read a proverb every day, and I read Proverbs 2 this week. And I, was, I felt this incredible sense of being grounded as I thought about the fear of God, being grounded in his sovereignty. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 2. This is starting in verse 1. It says, if we receive his words, if we treasure his commandments, if we make our ear attentive to wisdom, if we incline, that means if we submit, surrender our heart to understanding, if we call out for insight and raise our voices for understanding, if we seek wisdom like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then we will understand the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord. It's a sense of his awesomeness. It's a sense of his sovereignty. It's a sense of the magnitude of who he is that allows us to carry out hard calls like the one in this passage. So I challenge you this week, get off of social media. Don't watch the news for a week. And instead, spend time right here receiving his words treasuring his commandments, making your ear attentive to his wisdom, surrendering your heart for understanding, crying out to him for insight and for understanding, seeking wisdom as if it was silver, searching for it like it was a hidden treasure. Do that this week. It'll change your perspective and you will understand what it means when Peter says right here, fear God. And then finally, Because we probably didn't think of this person when he said to honor everyone. He reminds us, honor the emperor. H-L-F-H. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So to this end, beloved, live as free people. The truth is that no government can ever imprison us from the promises of God. We are free. There's a missionary named Nip Ripkin who's going to be here for a missions conference this this April here at First SF. It's going to be awesome. But he said this. I love this passage. It truly, truly um, just transformed my thought on this when I read it a few weeks ago. He said this. Nobody on this planet can stop you from sharing Jesus. They can only punish you for it. And that throws fuel on your testimony. No man can control our hearts. No man can dictate our eternity. Jesus has freed us. John 8 reminds us that when we abide in God's word, we will know the truth and the truth will what? The truth will set us free. The slave, he says, does not remain forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, what? You are free indeed. Live as free men and women. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, and it will go well with you.